Hi friends, welcome again to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. My name is Jeremy McCandless and you're very welcome. Thank you for making the decision to join us on this amazing journey through the entire Bible. A decision to make the study of the Bible part of your rhythm of your daily life. And you know what? That transforms our lives. So thank you again for joining me, whether you're here for the very first time or you've been here right along from the beginning. But by the way, if you are here for the very first time, then why not click on that subscribe button wherever you're getting your podcasts from and make this your journey too. doesn't matter what pace you do it, you can pick up from today or you can go right back to the beginning and play catch up for a while at your own pace. New episodes are posted pretty much every week, Monday to Friday, and the plan is to work through the entire Bible. But having said that, we leave it there and we'll drop back into the text where we left off last time. So today we're picking up in Matthew chapter 24 and we're covering verses 1 to 31. Now we know the Bible is full of prophecy. It predicts the end of the age and it even tells us about this thing called the second coming of Jesus Christ. So if that's the case, wouldn't it be helpful if it could also tell us if there are ways in which we today would know if and when that was approaching? In other words, are there going to be signs of the end of the age? Well, it's interesting that naturally we all think that way because none other than the disciples of Jesus Christ himself asked that very same question and thankfully for their benefit and for ours he answered it. As a matter of fact he not only took the opportunity to answer their straightforward question but he expanded that answer into a discussion if you like into a whole what we would call today almost a lengthy sermon not only about those events and what they mean and the prophecy themselves but also the prophecy itself and how it would work out in the days to come and he did that on a place called the Mount of Olives. And that's why this passage is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And it is actually recorded for us in Matthew's chapter 24, and it moves across also into the great part of Matthew chapter 25. So without question, this is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible, certainly on the subject of prophecy. In fact, most Bible commentators agree that this is the most important passage in the Bible when it comes to studying the events of the yet unfulfilled prophecy that the Olivet Discourse is talking about, the second coming of Christ. So in order to get a glimpse of what Jesus said the future is going to be like and to answer those specific questions of his disciples, what are the indications or what are the signs that they should look for, I approach us today to humbly turn our attention to initially we're just going to look at Matthew chapter 24 today. And I'll begin by reading to you the first 31 verses of this chapter. So beginning in verse 1 it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The next group of verses in my Bible are actually titled The Sign of the Times and the End of the Age. 
And it says, Now as he sat at the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus answers and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. But see that you are not troubled, for all these things might come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to a tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations that the end will come. We then have this next passage, which again is titled in my Bible, The Great Tribulation. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads let him understand, then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back even to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies, and pray that your flight might not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh will be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if only one says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out, or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcasses is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now the term eagle really is a translation, more accurately should just be referred to scavenging birds. Anyway, final few verses, 29, the coming of the Son of Man. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the signs of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven and then all the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great trumpet and they will together gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Wow, what an amazing passage. So let me begin by suggesting that this passage 
basically consists of two main parts. There's the question that the disciples ask, and then there's the long answer, which actually is going to extend beyond where we've looked at today, right to the end of chapter 5, uh, chapter 24 rather, and into chapter 25. So let's just look at this little short preamble by looking at the first couple of verses, which gives us the question that they asked. I'll just read it and remind us again, because it was a little way back uh, at the start of what I, I read for you a moment ago. It says, Then Jesus departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to him, Do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now you may remember at the end of the previous chapter 23, they were actually had been in the temple complex and Jesus had just had this heated debate, if you will, with the Pharisees, which climaxed with him actually denouncing the Pharisees, talking about the seven woes and saying in essence that the temple would be destroyed and that a judgment would come upon that generation. So they're leaving now, they've left now, and at this point the disciples come to him and they're on the Mount of Olives and they can see the temple and they come and point out to him. They say, look at the temple, isn't it beautiful? And as a matter of fact, the temple was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was built of white marble and it was plated with gold. So when the sun shone, it was said people could scarcely look at it. And the pillars surrounding the temple were huge. They were actually 37 and a half feet high, and they were so thick that three men together could not put their arms around them. And some of the stones that we used to build the wall were absolutely enormous. Some of the stones that were cut are measured today to have had a length to be been found to be over 40 feet in length and weigh over 10 tons each. And how the ancient people of that time cut these stones and put them in place still baffles a great many people to this day. This temple was one humongous, magnificent structure. So as they're leaving the temple and ascending the hill to the Mount of Olives, the disciples turn and point out to Jesus just how magnificent the temple was. And his response to them is to say, yeah, but not one stone will be left on another. They shall all be thrown down. What a dramatic statement. Based on the structure of the temple, as I've just described it, this is an absolutely amazing statement, and I'm sure they were stunned, shocked by it. So what does he mean when he says not one stone is going to be left upon another? How in the world is that going to happen? Well, the truth of the matter, that is exactly what did happen just 40 years later. Less than 40 years later, in fact, in AD 70, a Roman general called Titus conquered Jerusalem and in the process of conquering Jerusalem, the temple was set in fire in order that the gold that was inlaid into the stones could be burnt off. So the Romans literally dismantled the temple, broke it down stone by stone to get the gold and thereby literally fulfilled this prophecy in AD 70. As a matter of fact, if you go to Rome today, there is still an arch there in the ancient city of Rome, and that part that's set aside as an, almost an open-air museum that commemorates that event, the conquering of Jerusalem in AD 70. So when the disciples hear Jesus' answer, they're not surprisingly shocked, it, and it tells us this in the next verse. 
Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciple came to him privately, telling us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? So just note, they've left the temple area now, they've crossed the Kidron Valley, and they're sitting atop of the Mount of Olives. And the the disciples start coming to him privately and asking him, when's all these dramatic things he's described going to happen? They just assume that if the temple's going to be destroyed, then the end is coming. And if that's going to happen, it means that the Lord's coming back. They know their Old Testament, which is why they ask this series of questions. Now, there are at least three issues involved in the questions that they asked. Number one, what's going to become of this temple? Number two, when's the end going to come? And number three, what are the signs of the end coming and the coming of the Christ of the end of the age? So those are the three issues couched, if you like, within the form of the question that they asked. There are actually three things that they need answering. And that's what I'm going to try and answer for you today. But let me make just one other comment about their question before we get to the answer. I want you to look again at verse 3 because it says, When should these things be? What should be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now in English it says, talks about a coming. But the coming, his coming at the end of the age. But as I researched this passage, I discovered that there are different Greek words used for the term translated coming. And this one means, is a word that means not just an arrival, but it has the idea that once that event happens, that you're in the presence of something, that something is going to happen. It's a coming of an event. In other words, it's more than the idea of just a visit. It's about the idea of arriving somewhere to fulfill a purpose. As a matter of fact, this particular Greek word was used often of the visit of a king. So it's not that he's just coming, but that he is coming and his presence is going to be felt unexperienced and was usually marked in that time by some sort of triumphal entry. Elsewhere in the New Testament, interestingly for us, this word is also translated as a term we today called Advent. So this is not just coming, this is about arrival. It's about the arrival of the Lord and the fact that he's here and he's arrived for a purpose. Now, this concept is going to become more and more important as we work through these couple of chapters over the next couple of days and look at this in more detail. But for now, tuck that to the back of your mind because we're going to dig that out again tomorrow or maybe even the day after. But at this point, just note Jesus' response is to tell him that the Lord is coming and that the temple is going to be destroyed. And the second part of this passage, the main part of what I read earlier, will go on to tell us in the rest of it the answer to their questions. Now there is a bit of a problem in the fact that the answer that Jesus gives is extremely unusual and sometimes one might say difficult to unpick. I remember having a good discussion years ago with a very educated pastor who said that this was in fact one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, a really hard passage to interpret and that it was almost impossible to interpret this passage without also understanding, to a degree, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. So it's a uniquely challenging book, because at the same time, it is not only difficult to interpret, but it also is one of the most important passages in the New Testament. 
So with that in mind, I'm just going to give a sort of introduction to what's going on here. And I'd like to begin by saying that there are actually three basic interpretations of how this is read. Number one is that some people believe that everything here was fulfilled by what happened in 70 AD, when the temple was indeed destroyed. But there's a bit of a problem with that interpretation. If you jump ahead to verse 21, and it says, And then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world. So it seems to me that that little statement refutes that idea that this all happened and was completed in AD 70 because clearly that tribulation hadn't come, not on a worldwide level anyway. What happened at that time was indeed a catastrophe for those people then and there were a lot of people killed and indeed the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was burned to the ground. But you couldn't say that it was the end of all things. You just need to look at the book of Revelation and you'll get a very clear answer to that. So in my opinion, this is not the entirely correct interpretation. It's part of a correct interpretation, but it isn't the whole thing. The second major approach to the interpretation of the passage is that it refers to what some call the inner advent, that it covers the era from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ and they see that they make all these events occur and happen within these last 2,000 years. The problem, however, with that interpretation is in verse 29, we also see that it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light to the stars, and they will fall from heaven, and the heavens will be shaken, and the sign of sons and man will appear, so on and so forth. So in other words, again, what is being described here is something that is clearly not just stretched over a hundred or thousand years, but something that happened immediately, which is only ever going to happen immediately prior to the second coming of Christ. So that brings me to the third view, and that this passage, this part of the passage, is actually describing just the period of the tribulation, that period just prior to the coming of Christ. So let me show you a couple of things in the passage that lead me to that conclusion. But let me also say that there are other people, great Christians, more learned Christians than I, who have other views on this, and that should not be the divining factor as whether or not we consider those people, other people, Christians or not. But let me just tell you why I am led to conclude, in my estimation, what's going on here. Look again at verse 8. He says, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. In other words, he's clearly describing a point that's at the beginning, not the end. The end is going to be pointed at clearly enough. But this is describing the beginnings of things. And then when we get down to verse 15, it says, therefore, when you see the abomination of devastation, as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, of course, you, to understand that, you need to look back to Daniel and what the abomination of desolation is that's talked about in that book. And Daniel speaks of it three times, once in chapter 9, once in chapter 11, and once in chapter 12. Now we know from chapter 9 that the abomination of desolation takes place in the middle of this seven-year period of adversity. So verse 15 of Matthew chapter 24 alerts us to the fact that Jesus has been talking about a period that was prophesied by Daniel that was prophesied to last for seven years and that period is called the tribulation 
or the Great Tribulation sometimes. And this tribulation will last for seven years. And verse 29 here in Matthew tells us that immediately after that tribulation, that is when the Lord's coming back. So putting this all together, I simply, like others, hold on to this view that this part of the passage isn't talking entirely about the tribulation. This thing that lasts for seven years just prior to the second coming of Christ. Now having said that, we've still got a bit of a problem. Because all these possible interpretations in most people's minds seems to mean that we have to accept one interpretation or another. Now I don't have a lot of time to go into this in detail, but let me say to you that this is not a problem, I believe, if you have a true understanding of Hebrew biblical philosophy and the fact that it has cyclical elements to it, repeating elements to it. It's mainly revealed in the Old Testament and what will happen there is you'll get a prophet addressing a very local situation, but that situation is also meant to be seen as a foreshadowing of a greater and fuller event in the future. For example, in Isaiah chapter 7, there is no doubt a local situation concerning the birth of the baby, and yet that gets projected into the future and talks about a virgin conceiving and that that event being a prediction of the birth of Christ. So it was never unusual for a local situation to be addressed and dealt with by a prophet whilst at the same time to be projected as you like as a foreshadow, an image, an example, an illustration if you like of something that was to come. That is very, very common in biblical prophecy. And I think that's what's going on here. Just because it's been fulfilled once in history does not mean that it will be fulfilled again and maybe more than more than once again, and fulfilled totally and fulfilled completely within the coming of Christ and within the end of times. It's called foreshadowing. The local event, the immediate event, is a foreshadowing of what is to come, and often the greater that is to come. I think, in a sense, both of and all of these interpretations can be held to be in accord with Jesus' teaching here in this Olivet Discourse. And the destruction of Jerusalem, of course, did take effect, but it does, in fact, foreshadow the great tribulation that is to come. One author said it's like these events casting their shadow beforehand, pointing out that interpreting what lies in the future lies in the yesterday. And that's the sort of concept about what foreshadowing. In fact, it's what the very concept and meaning of prophecy is all about. All right, that being the case, now let's look at the answer itself. And as I said thus far, they've asked, when is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? They want the answer to that because they know that's going to be a sign of the end of the age. And it's also going to be a sign of the return of Christ. But Matthew then adds, that there's also going to be this thing called the Great Tribulation. So if we back up for a moment to verse 4 and ask, what's the Tribulation going to be like and how is it going to manifest? And Jesus' response to that is to warn people and say, don't let anybody deceive you because many are going to come in my name saying I am the Christ and will attempt to deceive you if they could. In the tribulation, therefore, people are going to come. But in the build-up to that, you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. Have you ever heard that said on the news or from the pulpit? 
Is that what's going on in the world today? And he says, remember, these are the pre-signs of the tribulation. But he says, see that you're not troubled, for all these things might come to pass, but the end is not yet. And then he says, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famine and earthquake in various places. How about those things? Have you heard about those on the news recently or from the pulpit recently? Are earthquakes a sign of the second coming? Are they the beginnings of the sorrows? But Jesus says these are the beginnings of the sorrows. Now it's helpful to know that the Greek word translated sorrows literally means birth pains. Now of course I can't identify with that. I've never had that personal experience myself. But I believe the understanding is that the first pangs of birth aren't as severe as the later pangs. So it suggests a growing intensity here. And Jesus saying, yes, those things are going to happen. And when you see these things happen, understand them and know that they are the beginnings of the pain. But there is more to come. Verse 9 does give us more details of the tribulation to come. It talks about people being hated by claiming the name of Jesus and people offending and betraying one another. And the fact that they hate one another and how false prophets will rise up into those situations and try and confuse and deceive people. But ultimately, this is all just talking about growing lawlessness and that because of persecution, because of of discrimination, because of a culture turning against God and his son Jesus, that because of that, the love of God in many will grow cold. In other words, as lawlessness increases, love decreases. As sin and selfishness increases, then by nature our sensitivity to our fellow human beings becomes decreased. But then, in the verses that follows, it tells us, that we who endure to the end, we can indeed, we will indeed be saved. So let me just make a quick side but important point. I've heard about some people talking about this verse, meaning that you have to endure to the end, means that you have to endure to the end to get to heaven, otherwise you fall away. I wonder if you've ever heard anybody teach that, that you've got to endure suffering to the end in order to get into heaven. Well, I believe that's wrong, a wrong interpretation of this passage. In fact, I believe it's dangerous and wrong, because that's not what the verse is saying. Just look at the context. This verse is talking about the tribulation. But if you listen to the word that ends the passage, and it's used three times, it's very clear that he's saying, in the end, in every case. So it's talking about the tribulation. He's not talking about the end of your life. He's not talking about the end of all things. He's talking about the end of the great tribulation period. So I believe that this passage has nothing to do with salvation, or this verse has nothing to do with salvation, but has everything to do with enduring to the end of the tribulation. And verse 13 tells us, Look, if you endure, if you resist the false prophets, the lawlessness, the persecution, the betrayal, then you're going to be saved from the judgments that are going to fall upon those who are the movers and causers of that tribulation. You're already saved for heaven, but you're going to be saved from the effects and the judgment that fall on those who are the movers of the tribulation. So this, I believe, friends, has nothing to do with your salvation. So don't be discouraged. It has to do with just enduring the great tribulation and thereby being saved from the judgment that's coming upon the earth in that regard.
Okay, let's just sum up what I've said so far today. This tribulation is coming and it's going to be characterized by false Christs, war, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, persecution, but also it tells us there is going to be a worldwide preaching of the gospel still going on in the midst of it. With the world in which we live in and the internet today, there has never been a wider proclamation of the gospel. That we can certainly see is true. Then in verse 15 it says, But look and see that when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel standing in the holy place, well, that's when these things will be. Now, I mentioned earlier that this was spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, and it's clearly talking about something that's going to happen in the future. And indeed, it is something that happened in Israel's history. We saw a situation where Antiochus Ephanus conquered Jerusalem. This is between the Testaments, and he put a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. So again, we're talking about a local situation foreshadowing a future situation, and obviously this is another case in point. The abomination of the desolation occurred then and in the first century, but all these events are just a foreshadowing of what is going to come and what is going to occur, but listen, in the middle of the tribulation period. Paul, in his second book to the Thessalonians, said that the Antichrist is going to stand in the temple of God declaring that he is God. He teaches that that is going to happen during these events. And Daniel chapter 9 makes it clear that this abomination of desolation is also occurring in the middle of a great tribulation period. But please note this ties in with Jesus' describing this period of time as being a period of time that has a beginning and the end. So what's going to happen in this tribulation? Well, Jesus says, if you're in Jerusalem at that time, then leave. Jerusalem, he says in verse 16, that those who in Judah, so in the whole region, flee up to the mountains. And if you're in the field, don't even go back to the house. Don't even go back to try and get your cloak. Just get out of town. And then he sort of says, God forbid that you should be pregnant because it's going to be hard enough to leave. And also pray that these events don't occur in winter so that your escape is not inhibited by snow. So the bottom line is get out of that situation. But remember, he's talking to people who are living and enduring the tribulation. And the warning is that in the middle of it, when you see these events happening with the abomination of desolation in the temple, that's the warning that we're in the, the final period of the tribulation. And it's the point of which to get out of time, so to speak. And what we see happen from verse 15 all the way down to verse 28, in fact, is the Great Tribulation, something which the world has never seen before and will never see again. In fact, he says it's going to get so bad that if God didn't halt it and bring that period to the end, then literally no one would survive it. But he also warns that during the time we have to be, have real insight, real wisdom, because there are going to be people who are going to continually rise up and say, look, the Christ is here, or even that I am the Christ, and warns us not to be deceived by them. Jesus said, don't be deceived. Right when he began this, this passage, he started with that call. And now he's ending this teaching by saying that we must be discerning. And in the end, reminds us again, do not be deceived. Paul also said that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Jesus says, look, I don't want you people to be deceived. Because all these sort of sweet-talking people are going to appear. And they're going to come alongside and say, look, I am the Christ. 
believe in me. But he says these are false Christs and false prophets and they will arise and they, they might even show great signs and wonders but and their using of them is an attempt, if possible, to deceive even the elect. Don't be, believe it, he says, because in truth, if you look at the reality of situation, he said, although their lightning will be as bright as his flashes from east to west, bear in mind, he says, looks as where there are carcasses, there will be eagles. Now, the Greek word translated as eagles should probably be translated vultures, meaning scavenging birds. So he says, look at the fruit of this situation. And if the fruit of this situation is death, then don't be surprised that these scavengers, these false prophets, these false Christs will appear. He then closes this passage of, of describing the end of the cycle of events in this way picking up on Matthew 29 again, immediately after the tribulation. So this is the period the tribulation is ended. So immediately at the end of those days, the sun will be darkened, it says, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So wow, the second coming of Christ is going to be dramatic. The picture painted here is one that is spectacular. The lights of heaven are seen to fall, and beyond that we shall see that replaced with the sprite shining glory of Jesus Christ in his return. It also says that everyone on this planet is going to witness this. And this suggests to me, and it's just a personal view here, that I believe his arrival will be gradual, but amazing and relentless. His coming, I believe, will actually take place over a 24-hour period. I consider this to be the case because it talks about everyone on earth witnessing it, physically witnessing it, which I think with the timing of the rotation of the earth means that there will be a 24-hour period when his arrival will be there. It will be a coming. It will be happening. And when he arrives, he's going to gather together the elect from all four corners of the world. He's going to redeem those who have survived the Great Tribulation. Now, I've got much more to say about this, and we're going to get to this later on tomorrow and the next day. But let me just say that the, this passage says that three things are going to happen. There's, going, there's a coming tribulation, there's a great tribulation that's going to last seven years, and then there's the, the second coming is going to occur at the close of that. Now, I'm going to unpack these verses tomorrow about what happens immediately after that. But right now, if you just glance ahead in your Bible, you'll see the very next thing is the parable of the fig tree. When the branches, it says, are ready and becoming tender and begin to put forth leaves. So what I think the picture suggests is here, and I want to leave you with, is the fact that you should know that even in the midst of these terrible events being described here, that in a sense, summer, spring is just around the corner. Now, I will get to explain that, and I hope experience that in more details tomorrow. But right for now, I just want you to see that Jesus is saying, after all this horror, restoration is coming. Now, in telling you all about this end time stuff, remember, what I want you to remember is in the rest of the chapter and in the next chapter, 
things are going to change and that should influence how we view this now and also how we live in the now. Our knowledge of the future, of the future events to come, should always dictate the present. We know, in a sense, that we should all do things today based on how we know the future should work out. That's probably the reason most of us go to a doctor or a dentist. If we don't make those changes in our lives today and keep ourselves maintained, if you like, then things aren't going to work out for us long term in the future. And I could preach in a whole load of things that we ought to be doing today based on our knowledge of what the Bible reveals to us today on how things will work out in the future for us. Knowing what happens in the future should make us think about what changes we need to make in the present to prepare, in this case, for our meeting the Lord. Because in one way or another, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen to you and I, friends, and it's going to happen in our lifetime. Now, what I mean by that is, one day, your life is going to end, and then you'll be in the presence of the Lord. Or, on another day, if it's not that, then one day he will return while you're still alive. But either way, you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. You're going to meet the Lord in the future, right? But given the fact that that event is going to happen in one of two ways for all of us, it should make us stop right now in the present and think about what changes do I need to make today, knowing what I know about the future. Knowing the future should motivate us to make radical changes in how we live our lives in the present. And I suggest to you that after reading this and looking at this together, you should just take a moment and sit down to yourself and say, knowing what I know now, what changes do I need to make to be ready for the future? Because that future is coming, friends, and it might be here sooner than you think. Okay, people, that's it for today. I do hope you find it helpful and we'll continue to work together and unpack this Olivet Discourse, this teaching on the, the end times and the coming of Christ. Maybe tomorrow, maybe it'll take another couple of days. We'll see how we progress. Let me remind you, my name is Jeremy McCandless. You've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. You can get it anywhere you get your podcasts from. Just subscribe to receive it every day but also it's hosted on the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com. And if you go there, you'll find lots of links to other ways you can connect and get other free Bible teaching resources that I make available. So we leave it there. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for each and every one of you who's come on this journey with me. You know, I could not do this without you. Whether it's not the fact that you've chosen to listen to this, I'm eternally thankful because knowing that so many people are listening to it is the encouraging and motivation I need to keep doing this. But also even those of you who have made the decision to partner with me through Patreon also is a tremendous encouragement to know that we're making the Bible widely available all around the world, allowing people to make the decision to have their lives transformed also by the study of the Word every day. So that's it for today. I do trust I'll see you back here tomorrow and I'll just say bless you and bye for now.